The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So, um, we're going to share some thoughts. I asked Wynne to be my backup tonight, so I'm really grateful that she's here. And I'll offer some thoughts, some reflections, and then if Wynne has anything to add, well, she can add. And then we'll have a, a bit longer time for Q&A, and, and we'll both respond to questions or reflections, and we'll just have a discussion together. And the topic tonight is inner and outer peace. And uh, yeah, I'll offer a few reflections from a few different angles, just really pretty practical, not really getting into so much the philosophy of how to save the world. (laughs) but more just from my own life, things I've been learning about inner and outer peace in my relationships. And Yeah, and I think it's... Um, yeah, I mean... It just feels really relevant and, and has... Um, throughout my practice, and it just keeps deepening this whole part of practice that isn't just when I'm sitting, but all the other 20-whatever hours of my day. And how's my heart there? And how's my heart then? In relationship, at work. So, obviously, that's most of our life. And, um, yeah, and sometimes we can have the idea, um, you know, that meditation is really what it's all about. But just in terms of our life and, you know, our well-being, suffering, happiness, ease, joy, you know, the, the important qualities in our life, it, yeah. So much of it is is about our relationships and and how we live and how we relate, how we think of ourselves in terms of our wider world. And this is a core part of the, the teachings of the Buddha. The Buddha was said to have only taught about suffering and the end of suffering. And and we work on it on different levels, and the Buddha addressed it on different levels. Not just through his teachings, which he did, you know, talk about, give teachings on how to how to have more skillful skillful relationships, how to work with conflict. But he also actually did things, got into the weeds. And, you know, I think this is really important to think about and to reflect on because, you know, at least I'm inspired by the Buddha as an example. You know, just my heart really um, is inspired by the idea and by moments of freedom where my heart isn't burdened and has you know just some freedom some some ease some peace 
But so often we can imagine that it's once certain conditions are met, when my life is completely in order or my to-do list is all done, and we can think of you know, the ideal of awakening as somehow getting out of this messy world. So I find it really useful to think about the Buddha you know, as this historical person who is said to have had a deep insight. His heart was free. And yet, he didn't just stop there. You know, and... Uh, that's not the end of his story, you know, his proverbial insight under the Bodhi tree, his awakening. He spent the rest of his life, 45 years, really actively engaged, building this intentional community that was really uh, against societal norms in terms of not being part of the caste system in India at the time. And, yeah, there's all different sorts of stories about, you know, it's not like that was easy. There was conflicts within the community of monastics. Um, He mediated disputes between warring rulers. So he was very active, you know. He was moved by compassion. His heart was free, and he actually according to the story, had the inclination, you know, basically no one's going to understand and it would be too tiresome. But according to the story, a celestial being implored him and out of compassion the Buddha decided to teach. Yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of moving stories of the Buddha, you know, we think of the Buddha or, you know, other people, but these um, people who symbolize awakening and peace and sort of, there's this image I like of a thorn removed from the heart, so no longer flailing like a fish. This is from a poem, sort of, you know, how, how often we cause distress, not just to ourselves, but to others. In our distress, we sort of flail about like a fish. But, so these symbols of people, and we're those people sometimes, and we look around here in community and we see people in moments, you know. There's just less self-centered clinging, and in that absence, there's more availability to just show up to to what needs addressing and in creative ways. There's a story which you may have heard of a mother who had lost her child and was so overcome with grief that she was insane and um, holding the body of her child and going around trying to find someone who could bring her child back to life. And... The Buddha's response was to ask the woman to find a mustard seed, which was a very common um, spice, from a house where no one had died. And so she goes around to house by house asking 
I need a mustard seed, but first, has anyone died here? And not, nobody can give her one because there's been a death in, in the house. And so slowly it dawns on her, oh, this, the truth somehow sinks in. This is part of life. And, and she comes to her senses and eventually um, ordains as a nun and has the same insight as the Buddha, awakening. So there's these different stories of the Buddha responding in these creative ways to the suffering in the world, not just, you know, obviously creating this intentional community of monastics and, and teaching on the mind and how to work with the mind in order to, to have liberating insight. So that's sort of one end, but also on, on all the levels of suffering. And I, I find that really moving because, yeah, there's something about suffering that, that touches my heart and that I can see it on so many levels. You know, it's like, and the Buddha was, you know, you know, when you get into meditation, you know, we're kind of getting into, at times, some of the more subtle. And we see oh, how, how persistent and how subtle suffering and clinging can be. Just these little things that keep the heart from settling. You know, just, you know, dukkha sometimes is translated as a wheel that's out of sync. So there's, it's like just something not quite... So there's that level, and you know, and then there's the, the gross levels of suffering, of war and oppression, and and the yeah, just uh, that we don't have to have a, a hierarchy necessarily. You know, we can understand, we can be let our hearts be touched by all the suffering, and and do what we can to address the suffering in our world, in our own hearts. This is the first noble truth, one of the central teachings, basically about this. Seeing the world instead of in terms of me and my story so much, but more of just being responsive to suffering and the end of suffering, like that that's a good enough barometer to live our lives, really letting that truth in. Because when my heart's more sensitive, it's very clear that that's the most relevant thing, whether I'm seeing it in myself, suffering, or just in the people I love, like, yeah, that more than being interested in this hobby or these interesting things, it's like, yeah, my heart really cares about that. And if there is something to do, I really want to do it. There's something to understand that I'm not seeing that's in some way contributing or... Yeah, contributing or supporting or getting in the way of me showing up in the best way I can. I want to see that. And so the, the Four Noble Truths, if you're not familiar, the first is there is suffering. 
and and each of the noble truths also has sort of a task. So um, there is suffering, and suffering should be understood. And uh, different ways of translating that, but basically, it's about our relationship to suffering. Is it one of resistance, avoidance, ignoring, being overwhelmed, or we? Or is it pragmatic? Like, well, cause and effect. You know, how is this being supported? How is this being perpetuated? So suffering is to be understood or let in, let it, let it touch the heart. That's the first. The second is then, when we do that, we become more clear about the cause of suffering. Clinging, grasping, attachment, resistance, in different ways, all the different ways it shows up in our hearts. Some sort of contraction as opposed to an openness, receptivity, letting it in. And the third is when that ceases, any contraction, resistance, avoidance, then when that cause, you know, it's like a fist clenched around something. And then when that ceases, there's that release, the cessation of suffering, so that that's a possibility. The heart can release. The heart can be at ease. And then the fourth noble truth is the path. So what supports that release? And that path is, is, a, is a wide path. It encompasses not just um, stability of mind through meditation and, and the wisdom into non-grasping, but also three of the eight um, steps of the Noble Eightfold Path are about how we live our lives. So right action or wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. So that's three-eighths. That's a big part, you know. And traditionally, this whole topic falls under the, the term sila, sometimes translated as ethical conduct. And most often, I mean, I'm not sure about most often, but at least as far as I know, often one of the most common ways that sila is talked about, you know, even though it's ethical conduct and it's often framed as the five precepts, so sort of in the negative of refraining from killing or harming, refraining from taking what's not given, having sensitivity and care with our sexual energy to avoid harm, avoiding lying, false falseness, and avoiding intoxicants which lead to carelessness, which basically isn't in and of itself harmful, but can lead to harm because we're less careful. So those are the five precepts. Um, But sila is often talked about as something beautiful. I think it's called um, the most beautiful adornment. And I think this this is interesting especially given a lot of our conditioning 
there's a story from Joseph Goldstein. Um, because often this, in the discourses of the Buddha and just in this tradition, the Buddhist tradition, sila is often talked about as this beautiful quality, you know, the, the beauty of taking care, of taking responsibility, of integrity. Um, and, and so the Buddha would encourage people to reflect on their sila as a way of brightening the mind, of bringing happiness into the mind, you know, just a healthy source of self-esteem, you could say. And yet, I know <laughs> for myself and for this story from Joseph Goldstein, when his teacher, you know, he, I think Joseph was struggling at some point in, his, in a retreat, and his teacher recommended reflecting on his sila sort of as a way of bringing in happiness or joy. And, and of course, you know, how so many of our minds are conditioned, the first thing Joseph thought was, oh, he's, he's like... Uh, uh, he's criticizing me or asking me to think of everything I've done wrong, right? You know, so yeah, and you know, we can have that conditioning around being good, being perfect, self-judgment. So we can use you know these teachings to hold ourselves to some impossible standard, but that's actually not the point. But it can, you know, it's, it's, it's a whole sort of reframing and reorientation where the emphasis is really on um, the beauty and the happiness, not of being perfect, but of that intention of being careful, full of care. Of, because we, we do care. We, we're, we're touched. We know how easy it is to cause harm. And when our hearts are sensitive, we feel the impact of that. And there's this, there's these terms, hiri otapa, which also take a little bit of finessing and re, reframing, I think, but sometimes translated as wholesome remorse or wholesome fear. There's other translations that aren't as appealing, like uh, dread and shame, you know. But it's really, it's not that. It's like, you know. I want to be careful. Um, I don't want to cause harm. When I have caused harm, it hurts. And I want to let that in, not as a, not to add on to that with guilt or shame, but um, this isn't in line with my values. And then we recommit. You know, we, we do make mistakes. And I've been reflecting on mistakes and how I've just been noticing when I make mistakes usually and it hurts, usually my kind of my go-to I noticed was resistance because that's painful and like, you know, somehow wanting to avoid that or like blame it, you know, blame it on myself or on the situation or, um, but like realizing I, I actually can't learn without making mistakes and this pain is actually useful. I don't have to... And I can even see, you know, cause and effect, like this happened because of that, because of that. It's not even so much that there's, you know, a bad Gabe. It's just, oh, yeah, that's how that happens. And hurt 
hurt gets caused. And wow, like it's so easy to cause harm. And it, and it hurts. And I don't want to feel this hurt again, basically. So I'm, uh, I'm willing to let that pain in because I don't want to cause that hurt. I don't want to feel that again. And so if we can attune to that, just that that's good. It's a good thing. And appreciate that. So that's, that's the way I've been sort of reframing sila. Not as a should or I have to be perfect. Or, but just appreciating our actual, not, you know, we have to actually find that part of us that, uh, that cares about harm cares about suffering and is inspired, feels motivated, uplifted uh, to take responsibility. Another little story, I was at Abhayagiri Monastery a few years ago um, and one of the monks was giving a Dharma talk and just this little thing he said before he was a monk, I think his first time really coming into contact with Buddhism and with the monastic. And he was struggling. I don't remember you know, why, but just suffering a lot and, and asked this monk, I think basically like, I want to be happy, I want to be happier. And waiting for some wise, deep response. And... Uh, the answer he got was pay attention to sila. And this is so basic. This, is so, this isn't rocket science. <laughs> and yet this is an essential part of the Buddha's teachings. And the Buddha would often sort of give his teachings in steps, starting with sila, generosity, as these practices that really beautify and um, bring joy to the mind. And then building on that with then practices on stabilizing the mind further so that it can see more clearly. And it's not like we have to do them in order, like we can't meditate until you know, all of our relationships are completely harmonious. You know, we, it's the kind of the beauty the art of our practice, we can work on all these different levels and they all support each other. Like Sayada Utejaniya says, try keeping the precepts you know, to a high degree when you don't have stability of mind. It's a lot harder because we tend to act out more when our minds aren't stable. So meditation supports our integrity, our integrity. You know, The way traditionally it is sort of laid out in sort of this sequence of one way it's said is integrity or sila supports non-remorse or less remorse, which supports happiness, which supports the mind collecting, which supports insight, seeing things more clearly. So it, I think maybe the, the most... Because um, none of this is new. You know, We all know we should be... <laughs> good people, but I think what's been really interesting and, and somewhat new from 
the Buddhist teachings, at least for me, is like it's really okay to appreciate that and let that in. Like, like the, the reason we do it, actually, now that I remember, there's um, a teaching on all the different reasons. This is about generosity, but all the different reasons to be generous, starting from like the least important to the most important. And um, maybe surprisingly, like, you know, helping people is, is not the most important. And actually what it says is the most important reason for generosity is because it's, it's a beautiful adornment for the mind. So basically, just that um, we really want to notice the, pl- the pleasantness and the beauty of wherever, you know, it's not like any of us are perfect, but just that, if, that we have a commitment to non-harming and all the ways in our lives that we could have harmed, you know, all, even today, you know, all the little moments we were a little impatient or whatever, or a little generous, that, you know, actively appreciating that. It's in this world with so much harming and carelessness, it's really a beautiful thing for people to be actively cultivating non-harming and care. So this can be a healthy source of self-esteem. And then when we make mistakes, that's okay. We're going to make mistakes. And it's, I mean, I've just been finding, yeah, like all the ways my mind wants to avoid that pain of, But it actually feels so much better, you know, like, say, receiving feedback from someone that I've harmed, like, just to let that in. It's like, I don't have to defend myself. I don't have to eat, and I don't have to defend myself, or I don't have to, you know, lay it on myself, like, oh, yeah, I'm terrible. It's like, yeah, this is the world. We cause each other harm. And then I find that letting that in it's much less likely I'll do it again because I've really let it in. I'll leave my comments there for now and see if Wynne has any thoughts to add before opening it up and we can share from our experience what we've been learning around our inner peace and outer peace. How's this? Is this okay? Not really. All right, I'll ju- I'll just keep talking and we'll see we'll see how it goes. But uh, I just have just when you were talking about uh, Hiriyotapa and that sort of willingness to uh, kind of feel the pain of our mistakes, that sort of humiliation or what whatever whatever that uh, squeeze of the heart might be. Um, like what a difficult step, but what an important. Uh, um, freedom it is also to go there and I Mark was telling me not too long ago uh, and I was moved by this story that he got some 
really difficult feedback from someone in the community that just that hit in a in a difficult way and it was confusing and but uh, he put it on his altar in his office like as a reminder so like being receiving it and then using it as a teaching as it's appropriate and I think it's like you know all our <laughs> uh, all our memorials uh, for the for the atrocities that you know I think that we make edifices that we make visual reminders of um, mistakes in the past as a kind of practice so that was just something that came to mind when you were talking about here you'll talk about. Mm -hmm. so let's hear from some other voices about um, yeah, anything in this arena around inner peace outer peace inner conflict, how it leads to outer conflict, what we've learned from those painful mistakes. So what comes to mind? Yeah, and please say your name if you don't mind. Hi, I'm Sarah. Is it, is it on? Maybe just talk a little bit, see if Mike can like this? get it going. Straight, yep. That? Yeah. Is that better? Hmm. Okay, I'll, I'll just keep talking. Sorry, didn't mean to go on about that. Um, so, um, I came here tonight after a mistake I made at work today. A, a really, kind of a bad mistake. And um, I was sitting thinking, okay, how can I, like, I was kind of munching on this. Like, I, I want to get rid of this feeling of guilt and... I, you know, and like remorse, and um, I was really trying to figure out how to navigate it because I often come here in a lot more of a peaceful state of mind, but I was just like in churning, and um, after after a while, I was able to f to kind of pick it apart and kind of figure it out, and a lot of it was like this. I know this is what we all say, but like this is what it feels like. This is this is remorse, this is guilt, this is whatever. And um, uh, I did end up feeling better about it. It's not like I'm any less in the wrong. For, I mean, the mistake is still there, but the, I changed my, I was able to change my attitude towards it just by like examining the way I was feeling about it and like trying to, and I kept, and, I, and when I sat down here tonight, I was like, I hope I feel better. Like, how how can I, um, how how can I work with this with this medit? How how can meditation help this? And it really it really did. And so it's interesting that this is what you were one of the things you were talking about in your in your talk about peacefulness because um, I I think the tool. I mean, not just what you know, like what Mark did with the the monument to his bad feedback, but that the tool of being able to understand why you're churning and to pick it apart like a knot and let it all, lay it all out there and look at it in a way that's not churning is, is just so helpful. So, I don't know, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, this one thought that came to mind was sort of um, 
Yeah, something you said about like letting the pain in and you know, I think at least for me it's sort of seeing seeing things in terms of suffering and the end of suffering. Like I really do care. It's not that I don't care, you know, about this harm, but I also care about my own heart. So I also see the suffering there and you know, I don't wanna I don't feel like it's useful to beat myself up. So that's all that, like you're saying, you can kind of, it can kind of, as long as we're willing to see everything and let it all in. But like you're saying, sometimes there's something we're not quite willing to see, and then it's kind of fueling, you know, activity to kind of, because it is painful. And so sometimes we need, you know, a quiet spot, space. But just with that, sounds like compassionate attitude, basically oriented around not wanting to perpetuate suffering. And yeah, and then things uh, get revealed and... But yeah, that, that point I think of like... When we're, when we're okay to feel it... Um, yeah, that's kind of a point. But, but it's, you know, but it's subtle and... With, with that habit um, of resisting justifying or blaming you know it's almost like we've kind of been taught to blame or to, to blame ourselves you know we should feel bad or guilty you know but so this kind of subtle point around um yeah maybe maybe that's not necessary maybe and we like we'll know because there's that like letting it in it's like oh because it feels right to not run from the pain of it, even though it's painful. But um, but there's also yeah something that feels trustworthy, and that we're not we're not you know it's not like we're not taking responsibility for it either. But um, yeah yeah anyway, thanks for sharing that. Yeah yeah. You can also pass this around. I just realized with my metaphor of like making an edifice, it's not like making a self, though. Like th this is a really important teaching about hiriotpa, which is wholesome shame is different than guilt. Guilt implies a kind of um, uh, self-perpetuating, uh, self-making around like identifying with this thing that happened, which the Buddha said is not a skillful not a skillful mind state so with with this wholesome shame the idea is to let it land we feel it we learn from it we take a lesson from it and then you know then it's gone we can drop it so I, that's just an important distinction that we don't I didn't want to say edifice in the sense of like we hold on to these things like mountains inside of or something okay Could you say a little more about the sila? Um, is, it, is that what the wholesome shame and the other things are like, about? I wasn't quite sure what it was. And you were saying that they could bring more happiness. So I wasn't sure if it was kind of letting those things in and being with them could lighten our load. Yeah. Yeah, so Hiri, 
Tekchek. Hiri and Otsapa are what we've been talking about as sort of, well, they're also called the guardians of the world. So they're like, when I, you know, am about or have the inclination to do something that um, would lead to harm to myself or others, that feeling of like fear, wholesome fear, like, oh, you don't want to do that. That's, that's that. So, yeah, they're sort of protecting us. Or then when, or when we, and, or, or what we've been talking about, about letting that pain in, that's sort of the wholesome remorse. That's how I understand it. So they're actually both unpleasant, but they're protecting us from causing harm and from causing harm again in the future when we, um, which then leads to happiness of, you know, not, and I don't think I mentioned this term, which I find a little maybe provocative, but but also, yeah, anyways, to see how it lands for you, the bliss of blamelessness. And again, this is where our minds can get perfectionist, like, well, I'm not completely blameless, but in that, you know, with that sort of judgmental mindset, we're, we're focusing on all the ways that we fall short, but you could call it the bliss of relative blamelessness, like <laughs> appreciating our good efforts and our intentions and, and our learning. So that's where the, the happiness comes from. And just looking at our lives and our commitment to non-harming and that we're doing the best we can, basically, and appreciating that. But that's a beautiful and useful thing to do. Um, and, it, and it encourages us, motivates us to keep you know, paying attention and being careful because we see it actually feels good. It actually feels better, you know, to, you know, even just simple things like refraining from killing a mosquito. Just notice any, oh, that's nice, like, to not do that or that I, you know, I, I took that time. It's kind of interesting how, at least for me, it always feels almost like a little awkward to appreciate my own goodness, you know? But it actually is useful. Um, it's not about an ego trip or I'm so good, but just it's there, there are beautiful qualities and the more we pay attention to them, the more they, they grow, which is for our own benefit and, and others' benefit. Thank you. Mm -hmm. What else? Yeah, Robert. Hi, uh, Robert. I was thinking about um, how we can, and maybe you can speak to this, um, how we can learn um, from our mistakes and the sense of the teaching that we get from our mistakes and how that's reflected back to us from other people.
Yeah, I mean, in some ways, this is why being in relationship, being in community is so important um, because other people will notice things that we might not notice. And, and hopefully if we have friends that we trust can give us that feedback. And even though that can be painful, um, I think this, for me, in terms of receiving feedback, like the, the reorientation of I'm really interested in suffering and the end of suffering for myself and all beings more than I'm interested, I mean this is an ongoing practice, but more than I'm interested in even like, you know, protecting my um, fragile sense of ego and um, yeah, because I can I can see that you know in in those moments when I when I get feedback, it's like the habit of just defending myself basically, <laughs> no matter what, whether it's you know you whether it's accurate feedback or not. That habit is just really strong, you know. So, but but just remembering that I don't like for me it's kind of a relief to just remember well, I'm not really trying to be perfect anyways, or like, I'm not, you know, basically I see the path as um, being less and less dependent on a fixed sense of self, or even like, to put it another way, I'm not actually, you know, doing all this, you know, meditating and practicing, I'm not doing it in order to be perfect. I'm doing it in order to be free, you know, and alive and responsive. And so when there's pain, you know, when I get criticism, then I really see that contrast. Am I, well, one way I think Joseph Goldstein puts it is, do I want to be right or do I want to be happy? And we see that really clearly in those moments. Like, I could really defend myself, but what does that lead to? It's just more conflict. And even if, you know, the feedback, you know, even if we take some issue with it, there's another teaching that I found interesting from Ajahn Sumedho, like when someone gives you feedback, you know, criticism, you could pay attention to all the you know, all of their imperfections and, and, you know, all the ways that they're not seeing all of your wholesome qualities. Or you could just, if there's, and he says, if there's even like a tiny grain of truth in what they have to offer, that's useful, right? If we're really interested in, you know, suffering and the end of suffering, that's useful. And so, uh, I just, it's such a, such an interesting place. Yeah, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that. Thank you. Yeah, one behind you. Um, kind of along the uh, oh, I'm Joe, by the way. Um, kind of along the same lines. Um, I've, I've I've noticed I really have a tendency if um, to look back and like if I haven't taken action that I would have liked to take or have done something that I regret or feel guilty or shameful about. Um, I get like so caught up in like the negative feelings attached with that and those feelings of guilt and shame 
and it's probably like echoes of a Catholic past, but uh, beyond that, like how do I, I think like realizing that, and I'm realizing how much more, like recently I've realized how much, how often I do this and how it's like kind of my like reaction from the jump. And I think that's like the first step, but what, now that I'm recognizing it, what, uh, what's important to like kind of start to correct it? I think uh, one thing that you can pay attention to um, when you find yourself sort of uh, uh, in the grips of, of that guilt is just the taste of um, like hardness, like a, of self-making, like congealing. I heard a really interesting description, you know, we talk a lot about no self, self, no self. Um, but one teacher described it sort of as the thinning and the thickening of self. So it's like if I'm caught in a cycle of guilt, you know, and there's such a feeling of hardness around that, like I've done something wrong, you know, and, and the self just erects in a really in a really powerful way. And so I can pay attention and know that that's happening, know that self is being made here and also know that it's not skillful. I mean, I think before I heard these teachings, I thought that there was something almost good about guilt in that way, like guilt, I needed guilt make me right or fix me or, you know, whatever. There's some, some misunderstanding, like guilt is actually paralyzing. So we can feel that too. And so I think just, just feeling the contraction, acknowledging sort of that Sweetheart, this isn't helping. Like that's number one, just to have that wisdom, and I think that can just do do a lot. And then just just in the just in the physical level, just softening, softening, softening. So kind of paying attention to the view in the mind, what's happening, the stories in the mind, the contraction in the body. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Sally, and um, I liked what you had to say because I'm in a situation right now where I'm close to someone who is suffering and um, is what I would consider saying unskillful things and blaming, blaming me. Um, and I'm trying to handle it in the best way that I can in terms of not getting totally defensive about everything, which I have done, but lately I've just backed off. And yet, when this is going on, I'm thinking, is it skillful for me to let this person go down this path for his own sake? Is that skillful um, to just kind of, what's the word I want, um, be very compassionate and kind and yet also allow some sort of, I want to say emotional abuse, I mean that's a technical word, but it feels that way to me, but to allow that. Or is it more skillful to speak up and for his, own, for his sake, in a way, compassionate to say, enough. You know, that's a, it's a tricky thing for me, and I've been studying Buddhism for a while, and I don't quite know that distinction. I wonder if you could speak to that. Mm 
Yeah, no, I mean, you know, we've probably all been in in, in a similar situation. Um, yeah, yeah, and you know, like you're describing it, there's a lot going on, you know, it sounds like this is someone that you care about. So, yeah, I mean, one way that I might frame frame it is um, I've been sort of um, thinking about things in terms of being willing to see everything. Like, I don't have to, I don't think this path is so much about um, like me getting in there and knowing the right thing to do and you know just kind of handling everything but more being willing to see everything like so if there's anything that's not being seen that's interesting like sounds like you're seeing this person and they're suffering that's clear right and uh and their unskillfulness and then so one question might be are you really also to giving equal weight seeing um, your heart? You know, how's your heart doing? You know, and and then yeah, it's interesting. Like in these tricky areas, maybe I'll just share a little story. It's not completely parallel, but it might help. Um, you know, in these areas where, yeah, where we don't quite know what to do, and um, and we often want to try to figure it out, figure it out, like what's the right response. But from a Buddhist perspective, it, it's always a question of the intention in the heart on a moment-to-moment level, and. Um, And one way that I think about it is just on the basic levels of contraction. You know, because if something is skillful, that means it's supporting the release of suffering. And if something's unskillful, that means it's supporting the perpetuation of suffering. And yeah, so we might not have, you know, you know, just to take another example, have complete clarity over like what to do in this world with so much suffering, just on a very broad level, you know, like what to do. But we can have a lot of clarity about our heart and its intentions and whether those in this moment are contracting the heart, like fear, fear of not wanting to say something, fear of rocking the boat, or whether the heart is actually in a beautiful state, like, no, uh, willing to hold the space for things to unfold. But that takes discernment, and it's not apparent to anyone else on the outside, you know, so there's no prescription, it's just tuning into the heart. Like, the little example I was going to give was a good friend was um, 
suffering quite a bit, but also pretty closed down and guarded. And we were on a road trip together. And, you know, their suffering was very much in the room or in the car and, and alive. And my heart really wanted to respond to do something. But with some reflection and sensitivity, I could see they weren't really in a place to receive much care. They were pretty closed down. And I also saw most of my intention was I was just pretty uncomfortable with that. It was almost like there was this palpable distress in the air. You know how that is. We're so sensitive to each other. And just by sort of staying attuned to all those different intentions and what they were doing in my heart, like, you know, that felt, that feels like contraction, like trying to take care of this person. Um, you know, basically it felt like a bit like actually like aversion, like you can't feel this way because it makes me uncomfortable. Even though on the surface it might look like, you know, compassion, care. So in the end, it was, it was kind of like settling in to this experience of just, just being with that discomfort. So that's just one example of where like it wasn't really clear, but by sort of attuning more to the heart, there was a little more clarity, even though on the surface it might look like, well, you, you should do something, this person's in distress. But in my heart, there was like, there was a lot of love and patience and just being with all of that, all that was moving and receptivity and not needing, not responding to all those inclinations, but kind of, but that's just one example, you know, in your case, not doing anything might not be what, you know, what's called for. You have any thoughts? Yeah. I think it's such a beautiful and important question, and I, I just had a, a story too um, about how uh, I think sometimes we just need to allow the space for someone who's suffering to suffer. Like um, when my father was dying some years ago, it was a really messy, really painful death, and he was suffering a lot. He couldn't speak, and he was partly paralyzed, and it was just very, very hard. Um, but I knew I was so grateful for these teachings at that time because I knew I, I didn't want to layer my fear and my distress on the situation. Like that wasn't going to help him. So just cultivating that equanimity in my heart really sustained me. It really let me be there with him, holding his hand and being attentive to what was needed without it being about me, kind of. So, so just having these, holding close um, these beautiful teachings around equanimity, like getting their value in terms of an appropriate response. Yeah. Time for one more comment or question. Hi, I'm Jill. Um, it is hard for me to talk in front of groups of adults, but I thought it was really, I thought it was really lovely that you began your talk with so much vulnerability, having support up there for you. So <laughs> that's my that's my inspiration here. 
it's ironic that it's so challenging for me because I'm a teacher and I teach high school English and I'm completely comfortable in front of like 35 teenagers. <laughs> so what you said about no learning happening without mistakes like really got me thinking um, whether or not I agreed with that and I think I think that I do um, and it made me think about how how hard what I'm asking my students to do on a regular basis really really is because it's like you make mistakes and then you want to learn from them you have to identify them which is hard and then you have to understand why the mistake happened which is labor and I think that that's like the process that we're engaged with here so that was a really nice parallel for me it's like we're trying to identify and we're trying to understand and it's hard for us and we're there by choice so it's hard for it's hard for my students too and I observed a like a really interesting phenomenon when I thought about it. Like I teach 16 and 17 year olds right now, but I've taught 13 and 14 year olds. And I was thinking that it almost feels like a little easier for the freshmen to learn from their mistakes than it feels like for the juniors. I think the older you get in school, it's like the more stress is starting to press down and the more your ego is becoming involved. Um, I even subbed in an elementary school for a year, and I thought about how like fluid the little seven-year-olds were when it came to learning, and it was really, really inspiring and helpful for me because I think like even with meditation, there's a pressure that comes in, and there's a stress, and it's like I really want this to work, like I want this to alleviate suffering in my life, and so like I really. I gotta do it and I gotta learn from my mistakes and it's like this is a very serious endeavor <laughs> and it's like when you see the students doing that the learning becomes so much less joyful and so much so much less natural and so those are like the dots that I connected from yeah. your talk and for me it ends with like trying to approach this with I don't know if the corollary is like the beginner's mind in Buddhism but like just a just more of a sense of lightheartedness and playfulness in what it is that we're trying to do and trying to get back to and maybe even remember and unlearn so thank you very much yeah thanks so much yeah when we're really strongly identified with an ego or with a fixed sense of self then we can't let in our mistakes because it's just too painful to that sense of me as a good person for example or but when we see everything more fluidly like it's just well causes and conditions it's just nature moving that doesn't mean there isn't more skillful nature and less skillful nature but we can hold it more lightly and um, yeah like it doesn't surprise us that we make mistakes. Of course we make mistakes. When, we, when we're more intimate and sensitive with our minds, we just see they're not personal. They're just nature, just following the different strands of our conditioning. You know, it's, of course it's like this. Of course. In the end, uh, maybe a good way to 
to end is this little quote from Saida Utejaniya, this Burmese monk. He says, the mind is not yours, but you are responsible for it. <laughs> and that's kind of a predicament, like, yeah, we can have that lightheartedness, because we see it's just nature, it's just cause and condition, and we get the task or the joy or the responsibility, we can take responsibility for it. I'll leave it there, not go the words, and just, uh, take a breath together. Appreciating being together, imperfect beings, interested in suffering and freedom in our lives, in our relationships, in our world, and uh, appreciating that. It's a beautiful thing. Appreciating the goodness here in our hearts, here in the room, goodness in our world, so many people, and our lineage, and all the people throughout time doing their best in their lives, study their hearts, and learn something useful for us, for ourselves and for all beings. May this goodness continue, increase, and never end. Thanks, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.